It's not uncommon to feel a sense of condemnation about your prayer life, is it? It's not uncommon to hear Christians kind of talking about feeling quite burdened with a sense of not getting it right, I don't do it often enough. Maybe even if you do do it lots, still feeling burdened by the pressure of sustaining what you've kind of set up for life. I've managed to start doing it this often a day for this long. I don't know if I can keep that up. It's not uncommon to feel a bit condemned or a bit discouraged um, about our prayer life. But Terry Virgo, I used this quote the other day, and it's helpful for what I'm going to speak about today. He says, Condemnation tries to master you. If you try to overcome it by keeping rules, you'll become a slave to legalism. Grace releases you to enjoy God's love freely and lavishly given you through Christ. Discipline, not legalism, ensures you keep enjoying God's love for yourself. That's a great quote. So what does it look like in our prayer life to enjoy the grace of God and feel released to pray, rather than legalism which drives us to a sense of, I have to pray. And there's a, uh, the life in either is very different. Jesus gives us this model of prayer, but before he does, he wants to warn us of two pitfalls. And so I've called today's talk Prayer Pitfalls. Two pitfalls we can fall into that leave us feeling burdened and struggling to climb out of the pit. So I hope you, if if you're feeling a bit burdened by your own prayer life, I I hope you leave this morning with a sense of Jesus's, you hear Jesus's words of grace to you this morning that release you to enjoy God's love for you and spend time with him, rather than being enslaved to keeping rules and targets and a sense of burden about how often you might pray. So let's uh, get into it. Some of the patterns are quite similar. Some of the things he says are quite similar to what we looked at when we looked at giving um, before Christmas. So let's read together. We're at Matthew 6, 5 to 8. Jesus says this, And when you pray, you mustn't be like the hypocrites, for they they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I I say to you, they've, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So a pitfall one that Jesus is talking about, the pitfall of impressing people. It's possible to fall into this pitfall of praying to impress others, gain their attention, their praise, their approval. Any uh, Star Wars fans here? Just a few willing to admit it. Well done, very brave of you. Uh, There's a moment in one of the films where Princess Leia um, says this, if money is all that you love, then that's what you'll receive. If money is all you love, then that's what you'll receive. If that's the extent of your ambition then that's what you'll get. And Jesus is saying something similar here. He's saying, if your ambition is just simply to impress other people, then you can. You can impress others. They'll be impressed by you, maybe encourage you, praise you. 
um, acknowledge you as, or whatever it might be, they'll recognize you. But Jesus is saying, that's all you'll get. It's just the reward of their praise. He's saying there's something greater to live for. There's the Father's reward to live for. Living, to pray, uh, living and praying to impress others is a small reward. If you exceed, you get, your, you get your reward for just a moment. That moment of praise. And then that's it. He says there's much more to live for. And if you do that, you can only end up either feeling proud because you succeeded and you've been praised for it. Others are impressed. Or you fail and you feel discouraged. And either way, it's not a great outcome. The greater reward is now and not yet. It's now, greater intimacy with the Father. That's the reward of spending time with him. The reward of spending time with my wife is greater intimacy with her, enjoying relationship with her, knowing her love for me, knowing that she is loved by me. That's one of the rewards of spending time with the Father, so too like our relationship with him. It's knowing his love for us, the joy of answered prayer. But there's also an eternal reward coming, isn't there? There's something greater in the future when we get to be with him for eternity. A greater reward to live for than the momentary praise of the here and now. Mark Homer, in this book, he says this. He says about um, in the secret place of prayer, he says, we come to a place of freedom. Our failures slowly lose their power over us, as do our successes. We get out from under the tyranny of other people's opinions. What a phrase. We get out from under the tyranny of other people's opinions. There are disapproval or approval of us, free to be just us, the mixed bag that we are, nothing more than children with our Father, adopted into love, free to be in process and yet to arrive, And that's okay. Our souls finally come home. That's what it means. That's what Jesus means by abide. The verb of abode or home. The place of rest. We come back to our places of soul rest. Saying is we don't have to be enslaved to the opinions of others, trying to impress others by the way that we live out our spirituality and the way we pray. We can be free to just enjoy a place of rest knowing our Father is already impressed with us in Christ. We've received the righteousness of God. God sees us just as he sees his son Christ. And so we have no need to impress him any further and no need to impress others. So where do we find home, like he says? Where's this reward? Where do we find God himself? And it says in the passage, it's interesting language, isn't it? It says that your Father, who is in secret... Not just like do it in secret, but that's where the Father is. He's in secret. He's in the secret place. That's where to find God. That's where he's at. And Jesus says, go into your room. And the language it's using there is the storeroom of an ordinary Palestinian home. It had been the room in the center of a home. It was the only lockable room in the whole house. It was the least sanctified room as well. Nothing special about it. It housed store for feed, small animals, tools, and supplies. It was not an impressive impressive place. No longer is the impressive place the temple, the Holy of Holies, where you go and meet with God. Now it's the storeroom in the middle of an ordinary Palestinian home. But the significant thing about that room is it's lockable. 
this secret place. There's privacy, time alone with God. See, God's near all the time, isn't he? God is near all the time. Whenever we're out, at any moment, we can pray to him. But we notice him better, we connect with him better when we have a little privacy with him. When we remove all other distractions, phones, work, jobs to do, etc. Whatever it is that distracts you from just enjoying time with God, to remove it, be in a secret private place with the Father and enjoy him. Comer again says this in his book, if our theory is right and the problem is more our absence than his, you ever had those times of prayer thinking, where's the Lord? It seems absent, don't know his nearness. If the problem is more our absence than his, our lack of attention to him rather than his to us, more about our distraction than his disconnection, then the solution is fairly simple. Create an environment for attention and connection to God. And I know of no better place than the deserted private place of solitude. That's what Jesus is talking about. Because there are things that you can say to somebody in private that you can't say to somebody in public, isn't there? You can be away with the Father, in, alone with him, in a different way to how you can be when you're around others and elsewhere. It's true in relationships, isn't it? Those that you're closest to, you can be more direct with, more frank with, more vulnerable with. And that builds relationship and intimacy with that friend or spouse. And so too it is with our Father. When we get time alone with him in a secret, private place, we're able just to be ourselves with him, able to say things and be the way that we are before him. Nothing's hidden from him. He knows our, our hearts wholly and completely. And we can just enjoy time with him. There's a bit of a trend in Jesus' day, and it's popular in our day as well. You heard the phrase, life is prayer. Yeah? Life is prayer. It's familiar in Jesus' day. It's the kind of idea that you kind of carry the presence of God with you all day. Bite-sized prayers, arrow prayers that you kind of shoot up to the Father throughout the day, living with an awareness of his presence. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing, doesn't it? It says, spend, just spend time with the Lord, enjoy him all day. And I think um, the felt reality of that is affected by what our prayer life is like with the Father in the private, secret place. Um, Moore, who writes this book, he says um, this, he says, we can snack on bite-sized prayer all day, but we need leisurely feasts if we're to grow up healthy and strong in the Lord. We can snack all day, but we need leisurely feasts if we're to grow healthy and strong in the Lord. We need those leisurely feasts in the secret, private place to enjoy the relationship with the Father. It sounds a little bit, in this passage, like Jesus is excluding public prayer, doesn't it? But he's not. He's not excluding praying in public. In fact, Jesus and the disciples prayed aloud in public together. The Lord's Prayer is plural, isn't it? Our Father in heaven. Um, it's, it's in the plural. He teaches us to pray our Father. It says, where two or three are gathered, there I am. Most prayer that we see in Acts is public uh, prayer meetings where the, the church is gathered together. The issue is not praying in public. The issue is the motive in the heart and what we're looking to do. So come along Wednesday 
and let's pray together. Not to impress one another free from that, but to spend time with Father as a family. Uh, the second pitfall Jesus is talking about is the pitfall of impressing God, which I think is probably the pitfall that's more common uh, culturally for us. He talks about Gentiles, pagans, non-Jews. He's talking about those who, who don't have a relationship with God as Father, but have a relationship with a God who needs placating. And that's the difference Jesus is trying to pull out here. We have a Father in heaven. We've got a relationship with him as his children. We don't have a God who needs placating in order to give us, show us favour. We're not looking to gain favour and earn merit, please the gods with our endless repetition. You kind of see it in the Bible. Do you remember that story in 1 Kings 18, Elijah and the, uh, the prophets of Baal? And they have this kind of almost like competition to see who's the real God. And the prophets of Baal set up their altar. Elijah sets up his. The prophets of Baal, from morning till noon, babble on and on, heap up empty phrases like the, Jesus says in the passage, and calling on, the, calling on Baal to set fire to the altar. And nothing happens. And then Elijah sets up the altar, and he makes it extra difficult, doesn't he? He throws water on, make the, the wood damp, and so on. Excuse us. And, um, and then Elijah prays a short, brief prayer, and fire consumes the altar. You don't have to heap up empty phrases. You don't have to babble on. You're not trying to earn merit, gain favor. They were marching round the fire, trying to get it lit. Elijah just goes, Lord, show everyone that you're the real God fire comes down and lights it up. You see it in the New Testament as well, in Acts 19. Paul's in uh, Ephesus and uh, some folks have started to lose business because people are rejecting the gods that they were placating in favour of being children of Father God. And so a whole crowd gathers in Ephesus um, complaining about Paul and his friends. And what they start chanting is this, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they repeat it over and over again like a mantra, repeating it over and over again, heaping up uh, phrases, as it were, getting in favour with their God. We see it in culture now. Prayer isn't exclusive to Christianity, is it? This kind of prayer or meditation is in common uh, in today's world religions. Muslims pray five times a day. Hindu and Buddhist meditation depends on the repetition of mantras, words, sounds, syllables like Om. Similarly, the, the religious Jewish people of Jesus' day, well, they weren't prayerless. They, they weren't prayerless. The 18 benedictions comes out of their prayer life. In fact, what they were was overburdened. They were struggling to keep it up. And that's the kind of context that Jesus speaks into. If we feel we have to impress God to gain his attention, his favor, answers to prayer, then we become burdened like slaves with a huge weight of hard work on our shoulders, which is what people in his day were feeling, rather than the dignity of children who are coming to their father. One writer says this, Jesus turns prayer once more into children's conversations with their father. Because it's, it's possible to enter, place, enter prayer from a place of recognition, working for his recognition, rather than recognition of his children. It's possible to heap up our prayers in order to 
earn merit, gain favour, achieve an answer to prayer. It's a bit like being on a treadmill. treadmill. I don't know if you've ever been to a gym. I haven't for a very long time. But on the, thank you, um, the, on the treadmill, you imagine you're on the treadmill and uh, they've got those calorie counters, I'm told, and you run along and you can see how many calories you're burning. And there is placed the piece of cake on the end of the treadmill. And when you get to a certain number of calories, you've achieved the piece of cake. And prayer can be almost a little bit like that, can't it? I run on the treadmill of prayer until I've kind of earned my way into God's presence. And I've kind of found favour with him. And I've earned merit. And now I get to enjoy um, answered prayer or intimacy with him. Or maybe somebody then will be healed. And we can, prayer can become therefore quite like being on a treadmill. A huge burden. <laughs> really hard work. Difficult. That's maybe not all of us experience it that way. Bruner um, says this. He says, The paradox of prayer is that only when it's relieved of the necessity of much will people experience the freedom for much. When disciples know they don't have to pray much, they will surprisingly desire to pray more. That's a great quote, isn't it? That's a paradox of prayer is that not only when it's relieved of the necessity of much will people experience the freedom for much. When disciples know they don't have to pray much, they will surprisingly desire to pray more. I think that's great. I saw this picture um, online. It says this. Step back. I have a mustard seed. and I'm not afraid to use it. (laughs) That's kind of the attitude to prayer, isn't it? I, I haven't really got anything to offer here. I've got, got a little mustard seed of faith. It's not much. I haven't really got anything really to bring to the table. Prayer doesn't rely on our efforts. Prayer doesn't rely on how good we are at it, how eloquent our words are, how often you turn up to prayer meetings. It's not dependent on our efforts, what we do. The length of time in prayer, etc. But it's on the grace of God towards me, by faith. It's on the goodness of God towards me, his power, his love at work. It says in Romans 8, doesn't it? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? The Father, it's out of the Father's goodness, out of his love for us. His work in Jesus on the cross that we can freely come into God's presence and enjoy time with him and ask of him, our Father. God's not a reluctant deity, is he? He's not a distant dad who's reluctant to answer our requests. We don't have to badger him to get him to listen to us. We don't have to heap up empty phrases. We don't have to approach him as if we're trying to get something out of him. By repetitively badgering him. This kind of makes, when we pray like that, it makes God out to be somebody that he's not, doesn't it? It makes him out to be a reluctant, distant father. It makes him out to be as if he's a begrudging giver. It makes him out to be reluctant, a hard taskmaster. He's not the kind of father you have to pester to get something out of. Like sometimes my kids come to me and they'll ask me repetitively, over and over again, thinking, eventually I'll get Dad, I'll nail him down. I know if I keep going on, eventually he'll say yes, and he'll come play football in the back garden. The Father's not like that. We don't have to pester him in order to get from him. He graciously 
gives all things. We have a big father, a gracious father, a generous father, a caring father. We don't have to impress him. We don't have to um, get, gain his recognition in Christ. He's already impressed with us. He's already called us his sons and daughters. We're already his children. Christ's righteousness is ours. And so we're free to enjoy time with the Father without burden. So Monday bursts of prayer every week, 9 to 9.30. We're on Zoom praying together. Every month we're praying on Wednesdays in life groups, we're praying together. Don't come to pray because you have to. Come to pray because you get to, because you're free to. And when you are in that position, that posture, you'll find you pray a lot more often. Otherwise, you'll feel a sense of burden. And Jesus isn't against repetitive prayer, is he? Because Jesus himself did it. Remember in Gethsemane? He goes off and prays three times, doesn't he? He talks to his disciples, goes off and prays, comes back to and forth. He's praying regularly. There are times when he prayed a whole night in secluded prayer. There are times when, uh, in the Luke passage, when he prays the Lord's Prayer and teaches his disciples to pray, then follows it up with a story about a friend who comes and knocks on your door and is importunate. Remember that story? Bangs on your door, and then eventually you'll get up and give them bread. And um, it's teaching the disciples, be persistent in your prayers. It's good to be repetitive. Not on the sake of, you know, like with a father, eventually you'll get it out of him, but more with a sense of, be persistent to ask from him. He's a generous, caring God. Bring the same thing to him again and again. It's a bit like our relationships with others. If you don't know somebody that well, I don't know if you experience it this way, but if I don't know somebody that well and I'm asking for something, I might ask once, maybe twice, but I kind of generally have the attitude of, I ought not to push it. Kind of my relationship with this person allows me to go this far and probably no further. But when it comes to a close one, if, if it's asking something of Jess, then I can probably push the boat out a little bit further. And the same issue doesn't, you know, I've brought it up once, I've probably got the freedom to bring it up again. And again. And again. Because I know, isn't that right? <laughs> it's because I know she loves me. I mean, it's, it's a safe place to be. She cares for me. And we can, we can come back to the same things with one another. Because the relationship's good. Healthy, strong. And so it's the same with our Father. The strength of our relationship with Him. Our experience of His inexhaustible love for us. His unending grace for our sin, our weaknesses and failures. means we can come again to Him. Again and again. He's not irritated by our presence. He loves to spend time with us. That's what He's done. If you think about the narrative of the whole story of the Bible, what does it begin with? It begins with a garden where the Father is walking through the cool of the day. With who? With us. With Adam and Eve. That's what he longed to do. And it gets broken and presence is lost. But then what does, what does the Lord do? The story of the people of Israel? What does he do? I want a tent so I can dwell amongst my people. And then build... Lord, I want to build you a temple. Yeah, and I'm going to be there with you, my people. What happens when Jesus dies on the cross? The curtain's torn in two. The keep out signs removed. And the Father says, no, Jesus says we can come into his presence. You can call him Father now. Because through me, through my death on the cross, Jesus says we can enter in to God's presence. Call him Father, our Abba, our Dad, and relate uh, to him.
So why pray? This is the final thing I was thinking. Why pray if God already knows? Because that's the last thing Jesus says in the passage, isn't it? He says, and your father, who sees in secret, well, no, no, not that bit. Um, Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, if he already knows what you're going to ask, why bother coming to do it? You know? If he already knows what you're going to say, why, why bother going to him? Well, his knowledge, I think, of us and what we need means we can come to him and talk more freely, knowing we're loved by him, accepted by him, understood by him. If I think about spending time with the people who love me most, if I think about spending time with Jess, time with Jess is refreshing. It's a place of ease most of the time. It's a, I can be myself. I've got, I don't need to impress her. She's already committed her life to me. Uh, I, she, I'm more likely to chew her ear off. She, I mean, most of the time when I come to something, with, you know, come to Jess with something, she already knows. She can see it going on. She can go, yeah, I can... I could see something was going on. <laughs> she knows already. But her knowledge of that, I don't go, well, Jess and I don't need to have the conversation. She already knows what's going on. No. The strength of the relationship, the love for one another, means, hey, I can come freely to her and bring this to her and say, this is what's going on with me. It's a safe place. I don't have to worry about her judgment. And so too with the Father. Judgment's already been placed on Christ. No judgment on me. I could just come into his presence. He knows everything about me, so that makes it an easier place to come. He already knows us as a church family. He knows what's ahead of us. He knows what we need better than we do. Sometimes we ask for the wrong thing. That's okay. It's his knowledge that means we can come into his presence. When my children come and ask me for something as a dad, it values my role as their father. I feel a sense of kind of encouragement in that. I'm the one who can provide for their needs, and so they come and ask me for something. That's a privilege. I know they don't need to go looking elsewhere for it. They know that I can provide it on as my role. And so too, when we come to the Father as a church family and ask of him of things, it honours his role as our great provider, doesn't it? It acknowledges that he's the one who has all the answers, all the resources, everything that we need, all the grace, all the love that is needed for what he's called us to. And so as we come to him in prayer, we trust and depend on him. So just coming into land, what's, how do you feel about your prayer life? Are you in these pits, as it were? Are you falling into some of these pitfalls? Are you feeling condemnation about your prayer life? Are you feeling discouraged? I don't, I don't really pray that often. Are you giving yourself a hard time about it? Jesus wants to take you by the hand this morning with his words of grace and pull you out of the pit. He wants to remind you of what time with the Father is really all about. You don't need to feel sense. Uh, you don't need to feel an overwhelming sense of burden about prayer, that you're not getting it right, you don't do it enough, or finding it hard to sustain. Jesus, by his words of grace, is pulling us out of the pit so that we're free not to impress people or God, but just to enjoy our Father and freely ask of him big things. Psalm 40 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, 
and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. We don't need to fall into these prayer pitfalls. The Lord has already pulled us out of the pit. He's set us on the rock of adoption into his family. He's given us the dignity of being called his children and the right to call him Abba, Father. And so uh, what better thing to do now than, than to break bread together as children who know the Father. If you know the Father this morning, you're welcome to join us in eating bread and drinking wine together. If you trust Jesus with your life, then please come and eat with us. There's gluten-free on the front tables. There's a couple at the back as well. And we're going to break bread together. Hey, if you're church family here, look out for those who are around. Make sure nobody's left out. Everyone's included. And um, as we break bread, let's uh, thank the Father for including us in his family, for calling us his children, for freeing us from the burden of having to impress him but in Christ, already being impressed with us. Let's thank him that his love for us is not dependent on whether we come to him or not, whether we're absent, whether whatever is going on in our life, it's not affecting his approach to us. He's pleased with us in Jesus. Jesus has done all the hard work for us on the cross. His body's been broken, his blood's been shed. So now when we come to him, we can just freely enjoy him together not burdened by impressing each other with our prayers or impressing God and feeling like we've got to earn his favour. His favour is on us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Shall I pray? And then we can go and break bread together. Father God, we're so thankful that in Christ you have done all the hard work of perfect life lived, and a death for the sins that are ours. There's nothing more to be done. On the cross, you said, it is finished. Death has been defeated. Our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. And righteousness, perfectly lived out, loving you as Father, has been done for us in Jesus. And in his death on the cross, we receive his righteousness. His death for sin, because of sin, is ours as well. And we've got the future and hope of eternal life with you as our Father, spending eternity with you. Thank you, that frees us from so much. It frees us from the small ambition of impressing one another, and it frees us from needing to placate you. It gives us the dignity of just knowing we're your children. You've adopted us into your family. You've invited us to call you Father. Intimately, to say Abba, Father, Daddy, God. You're near to us. Help us be attentive to you, to notice your love for us, to live in your grace and give us the self-control to be disciplined about enjoying your love for us and help us not fall into these pitfalls of burdening ourselves in prayer but graciously enjoying time with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.